The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. My guest this week is the scholar of manuscripts and antiquarian Christopher de Hamel, whose breakthrough book, for the trade press at least, was a couple of years ago, was called Meetings with Remarkable Manuscripts, in which he talked his way through some of the greatest surviving medieval manuscripts. His new book is called The Posthumous Papers, The Manuscripts Club. And he turns his attention not to these objects, but to the people across history who have lived with them and loved them. Christopher, welcome. Good morning. Can you tell me what the angle of your approach for this one was? I mean, it's it's sort of partly a travel book almost. Well, the last book, in a sense, was a travel book in that I imagined going around different libraries. Well, I, I did go around different libraries, looking at manuscripts, taking the reader with us, explaining how you how you get there, what you see, how you look at a manuscript, how you how you can discover things about a manuscript. But it was really about objects. This one is about people, people obsessed with manuscripts throughout all of history, people who've devoted their lives to manuscripts and why, and then what that then tells you about the use of manuscripts throughout throughout all of history. The sort of idea is, if you can imagine going to um, a conference now on any, we've all done it, on any specialised subject, in my case it could be manuscripts, but it could be on railway engines or, or Mozart or Jane Austen or, or anything. Everybody there from all over the world has an interest in common and you all meet as equals, as fellow enthusiasts for the subject and the the schoolboy from Texas can sit down at breakfast with a professor from Sarajevo or the you know the town clerk of Glasgow, and they talk about their subject with enthusiasm and as as colleagues. And then the idea then is to take that kind of collegiality and to take it right back through history. I'm fascinated by manuscripts. I love talking about manuscripts. I'm interested in people who know about manuscripts. And I imagine then going to see people through the last thousand years. Let's get out manuscripts. Let's talk about them. What inspired them? What, why did they find them interesting? What is it they're looking for? You know, what can they tell me that I don't know? What can I tell them that they don't know? And so it's a kind of imagined... It's not fiction. I mean, there's no, there's no invented conversations, but it, it's kind of what, what one would learn if one could go there. Yes, you do occasionally give them dialogue. I mean, you say, you know, I'm talking to St. Anselm, and this is what he would have said, you know, taken from a particular letter or whatever. Uh, in the case of Anselm, I do construct a conversation, but everything he says is a direct quotation from something he really did say to somebody. So there's, no, there's nothing invented there. And what is it that you think... Kind of all these characters have in common. I mean, does the love of manuscripts, is there something very distinctive about it that's, if you like, sempaternal? I think we can all have enthusiasms for any subject. I mean, anyone who's passionately keen on anything finds it all-consuming. What I like about a manuscript more than most other works of art is, first of all, they're very old, and they have words. You can read them. 
they can talk to you. They're often illuminated, in fact, they're generally illuminated in some way or decorated in some way or another. And they're often extraordinarily beautiful. They're expensive to make, they're expensive now. They've always been treasured, they've always been valued. And I love that sense of holding in your hand something that is of extraordinary artistic quality and words and language from a very, very long time ago. And this kind of enthusiasm is shared by many, many people now and, of course, infinitely more people in the past. And so I've sort of tried to choose people who are not not just collectors or just scholars, but a whole wide range of different reasons why people like manuscripts. So there are, there's a monk, there's a rabbi, you know, but there's also, I mean, there's a patron, there's an antiquary, there's a forger, there are dealers, there are, there are editors, there are curators, there are, there are collectors, uh, there are people who are interested in them for all sorts of different reasons. Yes, so you've very much kind of got to cover lots and lots of aspects of it. I mean, is that sort of sense of, the sort of fantasy aspect of this, which I find so attractive, is this idea of communing with the past, which I guess is part of the, you know, the, the fraternity of manuscripts. I think that's part of being a historian. You are, yeah. in a sense, communing with the past. You're kind of going back and using the, I mean, using evidence. There is no such thing as time travel. It isn't possible to do, except by weighing historical evidence. But that sort of sense of if, if one could get to meet the Duke de Berry, for example. I mean, we can't, he's died in 1416. But, but if you'd been there then, how would you do it? How would you arrange it? What would it be like? What would it have been like as a person? And I think he would have been difficult to meet. I think he would have been autocratic, grand, probably despotic, probably rude, probably very dismissive, probably quite hard to meet. Yes. Get him into his library. I know we would both enjoy ourselves. You know, he'd pull books out and he'd say, I bought this one in Naples, and I would say, but it's Spanish. And he would say, is it? You know, and, and I'd look at another one and he said, you know, that's by such and such a painter. And I would say, heavens, I, I didn't know that. And all, I think all that, that shared, shared excitement, I know, I know he'd have a lovely time, so would I. Um, and that's a passport. Well, and it happens now. I used to work for Sotheby's, and, you know, we would, you'd find yourself off on some valuation somewhere, you know, and you'd have dinner with the collector and his wife, and it would be all rather difficult and stilted. Get among his collection, and we have a lovely time, you know. Um, and it's that breaking through into what it is that animates their souls. That's the fun of it. Now, you mentioned, actually, the Duke de Berry. He seems to be a sort of pivot, because he's this kind of patron collector. And also, I think you suggest in that chapter, he's where the, where the idea of connoisseurship starts to enter in. Is that a, a fair...? Yeah. Yes, I think it is. The Duke de Berry was the, the son of the King of France, younger son, then the brother, and then eventually the uncle of three successive kings of France at the end end period of the Hundred Years' War. And he had effectively unlimited wealth, enormous, enormous resources then. He is especially known now as a patron of some of the finest illuminated manuscripts ever made, the most famous of which is the Très Rigeur, which is in Chantilly, which is that big book of ours with those famous, the miniatures of the months in the calendar at the beginning with the arch tops and the peasants or others doing the characteristic things of each month. Extremely and it's got him in it as well, hasn't it? It's got that, the, it is a yes, 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 extremely image of him at dinner. Yes, <laughs> extremely famous images. And he also was a great patron of works of art and 
the reliquary of the Holy Thorn in the British Museum, one of their great iconic objects, was made for him. And clearly, I mean, he's a marvellous patron. Beyond that, he is also a collector. And that was is perhaps more of a surprise, I think, in this kind of imagined encounter. First of all, we have nearly 100 manuscripts surviving, which he earned. But more than that, we have the inventories of his collections, which are extremely detailed. And you can see exactly what he had. And very often we know where he bought them, when he bought them, what he paid for them, where they'd been, who the previous owners were. And looking through that, I can begin to see one by one why he bought them, what he wanted. And he's interested in old books. He's interested in beautiful books. He's interested in unusual things, unusual shaped books, ones with extraordinarily imaginative decoration. Yes, as you say, there's real, there's connoisseurship there. And he's interested in the artists. He knows who painted them. And this is... A hundred years before the Renaissance reached France. You know, this is real Middle Ages. And he's got that modern sense of wanting. wanting yes, that acquisitive know. quality. Well, acquisitive, but wanting, wanting to know about them. Wanting to know where they came from. Wanting to know who'd owned them. He writes his name in books, but he keeps the names of everyone else who's had them. And very often they're mentioned in the inventories. He's interested in provenance. He's interested in condition. He pays to have them rebound. You know, he, he's sort of interacting with them. It's fascinating. And he's a real collector. Um, he also collected jewels. And there's a, a wonderful account of a, a meeting of state he was attending over the, the, the regency of the Nonkadoc. And during the meeting, news arrived of some dealers who just arrived from Venice with some jewels to show him. And he postponed the meeting and went out to meet them. And that's a little glimpse. There's a real, I mean, real <laughs> collector. The others at the meeting couldn't understand this. Well, in the course of this book, I mean, I don't know whether we're quite comparing like with like, because you start with Anselm yes. and come right up to the late 19th century, the 20th century, the modern day. Mm. And in the course of that time, you know, I mean, obviously now we cherish medieval manuscripts manuscripts for exactly what you described, for their antiquity, for their connection to the past. But obviously, you know, when we're talking about Anselm, you know, they're a relatively new technology, or at least a modern technology. And it's not the antiquity that seems to be as important, it's, it's something else. How did they change? Because I know, you know, obviously they're very valuable now, they were very valuable and scarce then, and yet... At various points during the Renaissance, you say, you know, these beautiful examples of, you know, Eadmer's medieval work were recycled into book bindings by... Oh, that can happen too. Yes, of course. And and how books are used and what they're used for and how, how any manuscript... I mean, an enormous number of medieval manuscripts survive. An enormous number do not survive. And those that do... They're like people. Each one has its own story and its own tale of survival and, and people wanting them or not wanting them and keeping them or not keeping them. And some of them get, get altered and destroyed and cut up and reused for waste parchment and others are preserved and kept and put on shelves and, and both happen. People use them for different reasons. We look at them now and think they're very old. But when, say, Simon Benning, who is the subject of one chapter, was a... Was a it's the illustrator. Um, he was an illuminator in Bruges in the early 16th century. When he made them, of course, they were brand new. So, in fact, they were already a bit archaic because printing had been invented and he's still making manuscripts by hand. And Anselm, who's involved a great deal in commissioning manuscripts and supplying different books for other monasteries in Normandy and indeed across England, 
he's involved in making new books, but he's making new books out of old texts. So he has that antiquarian interest. He's interested in classical antiquity. You can see still the survival of the knowledge of ancient Rome, and there's still that interest in that. So he's taking an old text and then turning it, or having it turned into a new text, which or a new book, which they can then use. There is there's antiquarianism involved there, but there's also they're making them lovely. They're putting in decoration and initials and arranging the texts and making them accessible and lovely bindings and showing and sharing and and he he sends out copies of of texts he'd written himself to people sometimes in elaborate bindings and he mentions bindings several times so that there again he's he's reacting to what they look like yes i love that there's a you can also trace the kind of relationship between beck and canterbury you know through lundfrack and other but you can find this particular spiky kind of script is a way of well, when the yes, I mean that is something you can watch the Norman Conquest very graphically by looking at manuscripts. Ten sixty six, the Normans came here. Normandy was a, a province of France and not particularly important before the mid eleventh century. And I'm sure that the monks there thought they were in some little provincial community. And suddenly, in ten sixty six, they became the hub of an empire. And the Normans then begin rebuilding cathedrals and monasteries in England and equipping them with the newest and latest continental texts. And they then, different monasteries in Normandy have a particular relationship with different areas. So Beck Abbey was closely connected with Christchurch Canterbury, now Canterbury Cathedral, and well, the first two and other archbishops of Canterbury came from Beck, had been recruited from Beck. Just outside the walls of Canterbury was St Augustine's Abbey, which has its own connections with Mont Saint-Michel, also in Normandy. And you can see, graphically, looking at the manuscripts now, those from St Augustine's look like Mont Saint-Michel manuscripts, those from Canterbury look like Beck manuscripts. It's what you'd expect, but you could you can really see it. Oh, that's extraordinary. No, you, as, as you mentioned, you know, obviously one major kind of hinge in the pivot or breakwater or whatever you want to put it in the, in the history of manuscripts is when they become, as it were, potentially redundant with the invention of printing. But that's not quite how it works, is it? I mean, you talk in, I think, your chapter about Vespasiano di Bisticci, the bookseller, Italian bookseller you describe. You know, he sort of sees printed books as rather low down the hierarchy of, of value, doesn't he? Printing was invented around 1450 by Gutenberg, or printing with movable type by Gutenberg, in Mainz in Germany in the 1450s. And by about 1470, it has really spread across Europe. As with modern technology, there was a generation of people who were rather shocked at this rather newfangled way of producing information, and they sort of felt that the kind of words of a book should be kind of put through, expressed through the human hand, rather than by printed type. There was something rather soulless about printing. Those who argued in favour of printing would say that a printed book is more accurate because if you can get the text right, and that's the first question, then every copy should be identical so that you can can reproduce a book without mistakes. Whereas if you write a book by hand, everybody copying a manuscript is bound to make some mistakes, it's bound to happen. But there was a sort of a sense for a lot of people that handwritten books were the real way of doing things. And Vespasiano was a bookseller in Florence, and he did not deal in printed books, though most half his career was during the time of printing. And he quotes 
one of his clients, Federico de Montefeltre, Duke of Urbino, as saying that he would never admit a printed book into his library. In fact, it's not quite true. He did sometimes. But there was a sort of... He was playing on the nostalgia. And the illuminator of Bruges in the 16th century wasn't even born until after the invention of printing. And he is presiding over an extremely successful business in making luxury manuscripts. So books doing things that the printers were not able to do. Amazing illumination, extraordinary effects of of clever borders where it looks as though you're kind of walking through the manuscript into a landscape beyond and all sorts of ingenious ways of doing it. They are absolutely remarkable. I mean, did his, his you know, that, that illuminator, Simon Benning, Simon Benning mm. did, he, did he kind of transform the way in which illumination was done? I mean, there does seem to be something more he modern. Is, he's part of our whole artistic movement, in the southern, well, in, in, in Flanders, really, the Netherlands, in the early 16th century, when realism really begins to come in and they begin to understand questions of, of perspective. And there is that rather fascinating concept that a book, a page of a book or a painting, is a two-dimensional thing. And if you've got writing in the book, and you need, in a way, to move through the two-dimensionalness of the writing into a three-dimensional world around it so you get these sort of trompe l'oeil effects where it's almost as if a hole has opened up in the page and you're looking through the window looking through the page into a world beyond that is something Simon Benning is very good at and they do these wonderful illuminated borders with flowers and fruit as if they've fallen on the page they look as though they've they've just landed on the page and they're painted in a three-dimensional way with shadows on them and they look so real that an insect passing by thinks it's a real flower and it lands on the page (laughs) and you see it doing it and you try and brush it off and you realise that it was painted too and there were these kind of layers of deception going on which clearly fascinated them. Yes, and I I love that there's a self-portrait you reproduce in the book where it shows, you know, at, at his desk there's a whole thing about where the light comes from and you know where, where they put the painting in the pot. There are two copies of his self-portrait, and self-portraits of artists are not that common of that period. One's in the Victorian Albert Museum, one's in the Metropolitan Museum in New York. They're both by him. And he shows himself sitting at a very steep desk with a window, the window on his left. And that is always recommended in medieval craftsmen's manuals because it means that if you're right-handed, then as you paint the shadow of your hand won't fall across the page. I mean, it's perfectly logical. We could have guessed that, but it's very interesting to see in the self-portrait that's exactly what is recommended. And when he does flowers and fruit around the borders, the shadow is always on the right-hand side, so you can see exactly that side. He's been doing it it with the window on that side. It's what you get. That's extraordinary. It's certainly, which came as a complete surprise to me, we talk about miniatures and miniaturists. This doesn't have to do with smallness. Technically, the word miniature derives from the word minium, which was red, was red penned. And decoration of manuscripts goes right back to classical antiquity. And although not so many survive, but a Roman manuscript with decoration, simple decoration, initials and headings and so on, in red, would be called miniatus. In other words, we might say rubricated. And then gradually that word evolved into the word miniature. But the word miniature in a context of a manuscript has nothing to do with size. It's to do with the fact that it's book decoration. A large miniature may sound like an oxymoron, but it's not actually incorrect. But then somewhere around the time of 
Simon Benning, as manuscripts really did begin to go out, the same painters began to train as portrait miniaturists, and that means miniature meaning small. So the words do get muddled up. Now, you know, the, the history, as you make clear in the opening chapters of, of this book, of if you like Christian manuscripts being reproduced, you know, as part of the sort of technology of the church, and the you know there were sort of manuscript factories almost, but. The other great religion of the book, or another great religion of the book, Judaism, doesn't work like that at all, does it? And you're very interested to hear in your chapter about David Oppenheim, this rabbi who was also a manuscript collector, how, how different the transmission of Jewish and Hebrew manuscripts. I'm really concerned here only with European manuscripts, and I wish we could have had, we could have done, done it twice the size and we could have taken in um, you know, uh, Islamic and Mughal manuscripts and Japanese and Chinese and there's a whole world of, of literacy there. But running through the books of medieval Europe is always Judaism and this is, I find, totally fascinating. It's the kind of magic mirror world and in one sense, almost literally, because the writing goes the other, the other way, so it's almost as if it is in reflection. But the Jews were always very literate and always had very good libraries and very often used the same... Of course, the writing is different, completely different. It's in Hebrew. But the, the decoration is very similar. And an illuminated manuscript in Hebrew, you can localise it from your knowledge of Western manuscripts because you recognise the way that the borders are done or the colours are done or the parchments ruled and so on. But... First of all, they're much rarer than what we would call than traditional Western manuscripts. Uh, there weren't so many Jews, and they were subject also to, to pogroms and so on in the way that um, monks weren't. And they didn't really have scriptoria as such. Very often they're homemade or nearly homemade, made for people for, for their own use. They didn't have institutions in the way that, that Christians did with monasteries and, and church libraries. So... We put in one chapter on this late 17th, early 18th century rabbi in, well, in Moravia and in, and, and in Prague, who put together a marvellous library of both printed books and manuscripts and was really, really using them. And one reason for choosing him is that by a complicated descent, his library has ended up in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. So... It's accessible to me. I mean, I obviously had to choose ones where, where there was information, and I've looked at a lot of his books there. And there is a, a, a fascination in looking at this magic, magic, invisible world that's running through the whole period of collecting, too. Yes, I mean, that, that sense that, that it, it, as you say, it's sort of invisible, it's sub rosa, it's not. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, they're fascinating, they're marvelous. slightly kind of surprised me, I think you say in that chapter that. There wasn't nearly as much interest taken as there came to be in dating manuscripts, and that there was less less of a sort of interest in you know this Jewish manuscript comes from such and such century or provenance. So that you're asking a, a huge question, which applies to all antiquarianism, which is really when did anybody, any collector or connoisseur or librarian, really begin to know or care how old something was. And I suspect that the Duke de Berry had a sense that this book was very old, but whether it was 10th century, 11th, 12th, 13th, he probably didn't know and didn't really care. Vespasiano was very interested in the 15th century, very interested in 
in classical antiquity, but it's very clear that those humanists of the Renaissance did not know how old the manuscripts were that they were dealing with. And by the 16th and early 17th century, the antiquaries begin to come up with different ways of dating and localising manuscripts. If you've got a, an English book with writing in Old English, you can assume it dates from before the conquest. I mean, that kind of fairly simple way of dating a book. I think with Jewish books, I think it happened later, probably not till the 19th century, did people really begin to care how old they were. I think that, that Oppenheim and many of his contemporaries cared enormously about the, the author. They wanted to know who who the author was, what his status was, when he lived, the priority of information. So whether, there's that priority thing, because you say in rabbinical law also... Yeah, that, that but whether the book priority. itself was actually 12th century or 17th, I don't know that they, they cared so much. And I suspect with Islamic manuscripts, that's probably even now. I don't get the feeling that I used to work uh, at Sotheby's, and we, we did do Oriental and Hebrew manuscripts, and many of the collectors didn't really didn't have that refined sense of whether it's 13th century or 15th. Didn't seem to mean as much as it would with a Western manuscript. They loved it because it was very old. But exactly how old <laughs> was never, never so crucial. So you I do think... introduce here one character. It's kind of a fascinating figure, the Abbe Reeve. Yes. If, if Reeve is correct, not Reeve or something. But I imagine it's Reeve, yes. Um, who, who really does start to... To date things, doesn't he? Yes, the Abbé Reeve was... Well, first of all, it's, it's very interesting that, particularly in France, a lot of antiquarianism is still part of the church. I mean, the Abbé Reeve was himself an ordained priest, though he didn't practice for most of his life, and at the very end of it, he, he gave up religion altogether. But he comes out of that kind of... that tradition, old-fashioned tradition of clerical enthusiasm and he was not a collector he was he was an advisor really advisor to collectors and an author bibliographer enormously well read a difficult man spiky character spiky character i mean impossible to deal with but he was fascinated by little ways of tricks of how to date and localize manuscripts you know and then what this tells you about the period. He was interested in, in the artists. He was interested in, in using manuscripts as a way of dating costumes, for example, and the other way around, using costumes to date manuscripts and putting them in a real kind of historical context. And it is surprising that this happens as late as the 18th century. Rabbi Oppenheim, you mentioned, was earlier than that, a little bit earlier, and a part of a different tradition. But out of the Abbey Reeve then grew all those great early 19th century collections, many of which were English, who were using this very, very early kind of connoisseurship and judging things, wanting to know how old they were, which we now do desperately. Great, great. Yeah. Yeah. But actually, I can't mention the other without mentioning... You know, he made off with Gutenberg Bible, which you described somewhere in the book as being an honorary manuscript... How did that come about? <laughs> we actually don't know how it came about, and I don't know what happened. He was always, he was unsuccessful, man. Everything went wrong in his life, you know. And he gets caught up in the early stages of the French Revolution, and he's almost on the run at the end of his life. He's moving from place to place in the south of France with his writing intemperate pamphlets and annoying everybody everywhere, putting his foot in it. I can sympathise with the man enormously. <laughs> um, and eventually his reference library is sold and mixed up among his books was a Gutenberg Bible, which was then 
even then, one of the most valuable books in the world. I mean, extraordinarily valuable. How it got there? Well, he must have known what it was, but whether he bought it or found it or was given it or stole it or I don't know what happened. <laughs> but as you um, say, it doesn't t- turn up in his... He has a little index where he says, you know, these Gutenberg Bibles yes, are no, extant. No, he doesn't, he doesn't mention No, no he doesn't, he doesn't mention it, which yeah. is a little suspicious, but <laughs> I actually don't know how that happened. If I could beat him, I'd love to, I'd love to know. But a Gutenberg Bible is probably worth, well... Many, many tens of millions now, you know, yeah. and is probably more valuable than any of the illuminated manuscripts he bought for or arranged for, for other people to acquire. But he had it himself. I'm slightly ashamed to have a printed, a, a mere printed book included in, in my own book at all. Uh, well, well as well. I say, you make a little exemption for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, sorry, to jump back now slightly in time and to jump back to England, we ought to mention Sir Robert Cotton because his collection is the basis of the British Museum's, or what now the British Library's, manuscript collection, is it not? Yes, the British Museum was founded in the 1750s by a coming together of several circumstances, which included a dreadful fire which had happened in the cotton collection in the 1730s, but also then the availability of the Harleian manuscripts and various other groups of things came together and it kind of focused the minds of of, of Hanoverian England on the vulnerability of our history and the necessity, as they saw it, to create a kind of national collection. Very early in the history of museums, most of the big national collections of Europe came out of royal or princely collections. British Museum was a national foundation, parliamentary foundation from the beginning. And it was spurred, was it, by this, you know, Cotton's Library catching fire? It was undoubtedly that sort of sense that these things need to be looked after came out of that. Cotton had died a hundred years earlier and had put together and had lived in in a house within the complex of the Palace of Westminster. He was very, very much involved in, in government and government policy. And all the libraries of England had been totally scattered at the Reformation. And different collectors, including people working for Henry VIII and Matthew Parker, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, had been gathering things together. But Cotton has a real sense that information is knowledge and that he was putting together a collection which would establish precedent and the practices and customs of England and Englishness. And during a time of, of, of huge uh, political turmoil, he was looking for the stability of precedent and puts together this extraordinary library of English books, particularly English history, English language, English English religion, English politics, and intends them to be a kind of resource for controlling, controlling government. And that's what he enjoyed. And then his collection descended to his son and then his grandson, who then finally bequeathed it to the nation. And then it goes through this dreadful holocaust of being badly burnt, and then is recovered or gathered up and it becomes the core of our national national library. And painstakingly, I mean, there's a lovely description of how these tiny, tiny fragments of burnt paper are just kind of pasted together, jigsaw style. To... Yes, jigsaw style. Not everything was destroyed. I mean, the Linda Svan Gospels belong to him. It's one of the Miraculously survived. Yes, <laughs> one of the world's great, great, great objects and is in perfect condition. He also earned... The unique manuscript to Beowulf, which is the, obviously the foundation text of English English literature, which was charred around the edges and damaged, but 
does survive. One or two other texts were completely lost, like Asser's Life of King Alfred or the original manuscript of the Battle of Malden. But both those had been transcribed when they were in the Cotton Collection, so we know the texts from other people using them, but the original manuscripts have gone. And does Beowulf not have a famous shelf mark, which is one of the Roman emperors? All the Cotton manuscripts have names after emperors. This was because Cotton himself probably himself or certainly his heirs, arranged his books in bookshelves with the the Twelve Caesars, busts of the Twelve Caesars and then a couple of other people above the bookcases so that every cotton manuscript still has the name. It'll be called Vespasian such and such or Nero so and so. It's wonderful that that survived, isn't it? I mean, it's you a, know, one thinks the Dewey Decimal System would have rolled over that. but It's a, a curiosity that's been preserved and I rather like it. Now, I'm interested that you include, I mean, obviously everyone's fascinated by this, in a book which is about this fraternal relationship between the Manuscripts Club, you have, you know, what by most people's standards would be a great well poisoner. You've got Constantine Simonides, who is a forger, who makes up these terrible fake Greek manuscripts and tries to sell them to the honest collectors. What's the attraction of putting him in there? I think I'm interested in anybody who is fascinated by manuscripts. I don't mind what it is that brings them into the club. I would love to meet Simonides. I don't know how well I could actually have talked to him. He spoke English not terribly well, but he was a forger. But he knew he knew everything about manuscripts. He, he supplies whatever everybody wants. He pretended. I mean, he's a complete rogue, and yet he's a very endearing one. He is obsessed with manuscripts. He knows a huge amount about them. He's seen an immense number of them. He's actually quite a scholar to be a successful And forger. he's a scholar, and he's very good at it, and he travelled around enormously. And he arrived in England. Well, he, he pops up all, o- all over the place. We find him all around the Mediterranean and Germany and France and England at different stages. And... It's just at that moment when people are interested in Greek culture. Philo-Hellenism has kind of come in. British Museum is built like an imitation of the, of the Parthenon. I mean, it's the period when suddenly people are fascinated by, by Greece and Greek, Greek culture. And he said that he'd lived among the monks of Mount Athos and that a relative of his, usually called his uncle, had been an abbot there. And he'd come away with a whole lot of manuscripts, which he was then hoping to sell or find it's Uncle Benedict. It's a kind of fantastic only fools and horses kind of thing. Almost figure, probably never existed. The whole thing, whole thing is complicated. And he would supply whatever anybody particularly wanted. So one of the great manuscript collectors, extraordinary figure, equally peculiar, was a man called Sir Thomas Phillips, who died in 1872. And he was a classicist. I mean, he'd, he'd read classics at University College in Oxford. And Simonides sold him a manuscript of Homer, you know, believing arguing that this was a contemporary... It's the first three books of the Iliad. Yeah, contemporary manuscript, possibly from the Library of Alexandria. Phillips fell for this completely. You know, Simonides then vanishes and he turns up in, in Germany and, and he produces a manuscript of a classical historian which so impressed the scholars in the editor in Leipzig called Dindorf that he published an edition of it with the Oxford University Press. It's completely fake. It's totally bogus. He then turns up in Liverpool and starts unrolling ancient papyri and finding lost texts of classical antiquity or a manuscript of of St Matthew's Gospel written within the lifetime of the author. Completely now impossible. And people were swept along by this. And then gradually 
it begins. We don't quite know how he did it. I mean, some of it is it's conjuring tricks. But enthusiasm, absolutely. Knowledge of manuscripts without question. Oh, we could have Marv. You could, do, you, could <laughs> you could have him him in for an interview, and it would be really, really interesting. He really knew what he was talking about, and he's not necessarily doing it for profit. I mean, some of them he didn't sell at all. He's doing it just for the for the amusement of it, for the fascination of it, for the joy of supplying what was lost. And he may sometimes almost have felt that he was reconstructing, resupplying something that once existed. And he's putting it back. It's like the. At what point does 19th century restoration of an old building become forgery, and what point is it reconstruction? And there was a bit of each. Uh, it does seem to the willingness with which his marks were taken in. There's a lovely story you tell about when he's trying to sell the Homer to Phillips. Yes. He has another house guest who says, This was obviously fake. Don't do it. Don't do it. And Simonides storms off and then. Following morning, he comes out to breakfast, and Philip says, "Well, I did, I did slightly buy the Homer yeah. just in case." Yeah, well, well, that there is the collector too, you know, the man who's prepared to suspend his disbelief, just in the hope it might be genuine. And there are those, there are still conspiracy theorists who say that some of these Sorodides manuscripts are genuine. I hoped all the way through writing that chapter I might be able to prove that one or two actually were authentic. I think they're not. I mean, I think... I think well, you say that some of them, to the modern eye, are very crude forgeries, or not crude forgeries, but you sort of say, when you look at them now, like, this is obviously fake. I think the same applies to all forgeries. In its time, a forgery looks awfully authentic. We look at those Van Mager and, you know, paintings done in the 1930s, the Via Mia that, that was sold to yeah. Goering. Or and you think, how could anyone have fallen for that? It just looks like a figure of the 1930s. But in your own time, oddly, we don't see it. Or a film of, film of Robin Hood done in, you know, you can tell looking at the film when the film was made, 1920s, 1950s, 1980s. Now it looks authentic. In 20 years, they're going to laugh at contemporary historical fiction say that's ridiculous somehow in your own time you don't you don't notice the oddities of it oh that's interesting and you said this conspiracy theory that some of his his work is authentic you also surprised to say that there continue to be people who believe that Simonides faked the Codex Sinaiticus when what really happened in the late 1850s 1859 Darwin's Origin of Species came out and suddenly the drawing rooms of Europe were in uproar over whether the scriptures were real, whether this kind of exploded the Christian religion. And people are arguing fiercely both ways, feeling licensed to criticise religion and also longing, 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 longing to find authenticity. There was a, obviously a huge backlash the other way where people really looked for proof of the antiquity of, of religion. So in 1860, exactly that moment, Simonides turns up this practically autographed manuscript of St Matthew's Gospel and evangelicals across Britain were thrilled at this miracle in their own age. Churches rang bells, you know, at this discovery of proving that the Gospels go right, you know, right back to the first century. And at exactly the same moment, Constantine Tischendorf, German scholar, discovered the Codex Sinaiticus, which is 
this great 4th century manuscript discovered on Mount Sinai, which is still the oldest substantially complete manuscript of the Bible. It is the core. It's the real deal. The real core text on which the whole of both Old Testament and New Testament in Greek now hinge. And from Simonides' point of view, here was a man who had upstaged him with his little factories of producing what everybody wanted, and he became his great nemesis. And when, he was, when Simonides was finally exposed as a forger... And I think he accepted rather mildly that he was. He said, you might like to know, I wrote the Codex Sinaiticus too. Um, in other words, he was then landing his, his rival in the soup. Fantastic. Now, now, if I'm going down, I'm taking you with me. Yeah, exactly. Now, as a matter of fact, he did not write it. I mean, there is no question of it. Absolutely. There is no possibility of it. The Codex Sinaiticus is absolutely, totally genuine. It's on permanent exhibition in the British Library. You can, We can all go and look at it any day. It's as real. It is absolutely real. But there are still people who accept that that's a fake. It's just fascinating to hear the vehemence with which you say that. Now you actually, in the book, I think you say, yes. you know, and I repeat. Yeah. Is it just, is there a real anxiety that these sort of conspiracy theories... It and, is exactly conspiracy, conspiracy theory. Conspiracy. That, yeah. that is precisely what it is. But we all know that there are people who believe all sorts of extraordinary things. But, but he didn't write it. He didn't. I mean, it's, it's, it's fantasy. And when you really come down to it, there's an awful lot about Simonides we don't know at all. It's well known that he died in Egypt, in Alexandria, of, of leprosy in the late 1860s. And then ten years later, he turns up again in, in Vienna. You know, and what a, his death was faked, you know, and everything, everything. The more we discover about him, the more he's forever shifting. I don't even, in the end, I don't even really know that he was called Simonides. I mean, maybe that was a fake. I mean, it's all these sort of mirrors and conjuring tricks is really what it is. It's sort of drawing room conjuring Fascinating, fascinating man. And he knew everybody. He's in and out of this world. He's absolutely a member of my manuscripts club. I, <laughs> I admit him with, with joy. Very good. Christopher Hummel, thank you very much indeed for your time. Here.